Charles here. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 7 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode, Episode 62, I talk with Drs. Jessica Kester and Stephanie Vi about their article, Social Media in Practice, Assignments, Perceptions, Possibilities, in the newest issue of Currents in Teaching and Learning Academic Journal. And social media is an avenue to address those kinds of public audiences, but we didn't see that happening a lot in our sample. And that, again, was, was just interesting to us. And I think that, you know, there's a really good point that Jessica raised based on what we were seeing in our data. And that was that there was a lot of reputation of what we might think of as traditional sorts of composition assignments, writing to the instructor, what Place Benuzzi's called pseudo-transactionality. You'll hear more from Jessica and Stephanie in a bit. If you are a regular listener to the Big Rhetorical Podcast, then you know that last week I teased about how excited I was about this week's episode. I told you that I had some big news, and, well, I do. If you're a first-time listener, well, you can ask my partner, and she will tell you I have a flair for the dramatic. So bear with me. The last year has given us pain, agony, and confusion as we traverse and continue to traverse the uncertainties that the coronavirus pandemic has brought to our doorsteps. Economically, socially, mentally, we all have had to reckon with the harsh realities beset by COVID-19. Furthermore, the post-pandemic landscape is still a dream, not a reality, and what we hope for is an undiscovered country, a distant light at the end of a tunnel we are only now approaching. For a lot of people, being cooped up in our houses, unable to see our colleagues, unable to be in classrooms with our students, and unable to access resources through our universities and libraries has changed the way we think about work. For a lot of people, being cooped up in our houses, unable to see our friends, unable to be in hospital rooms with our relatives, and unable to access food, childcare, and gainful employment has changed the way we think about life. As I contemplated my own studies and the work I was doing on this podcast, one thing I decided during the pandemic is that I wanted to find a way for the Big Rhetorical Podcast to be more than a contribution to the disciplines we study, more than a way of extending how we think about digital publication and scholarship. I want the podcast to really give back to our community. So I worked in my spare time to establish a nonprofit. It's been a tedious journey, plagued by paperwork and required snail mail correspondence with my state, but today I'm pleased to announce the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. The goal of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award is to highlight graduate students who make significant contributions to rhetoric, writing studies, and communications in their teaching, service, scholarship, and commitment to diversity and inclusion. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award comes with a financial prize 
of $100. To be eligible for this award, nominees must be enrolled in a graduate program in rhetoric, writing, studies, and communications or a related field during the 2020-2021 academic year. Exhibit effective teaching strategies in the rhetoric, writing studies, and communications classrooms. Demonstrate a commitment to diversity and inclusion in the community and in the classroom. Contribute to the development of the field through service to their department, institution, and the larger academic community. Advance critical conversations in the disciplines through the publication of scholarship, refereed, non-refereed, open access, and digital works. To nominate someone for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, submit an email with your name, institutional affiliation, a 200-word bio, and a CV as a single PDF to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Explain in the 200-word bio how you or your nominee meet the above criteria. Use the subject line, Graduate Student Award. Nominations are accepted until May 15th, 2021. Self-nominations are welcome. For more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, please reach out to the Big Rhetorical Podcast at thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. I want to mention, I am excited to work with an exciting, smart panel of judges, all assistant professors, to give out this award. Finally, the winner of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award will be announced at the second annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival in August. We need your help. We need your help to make this award possible and hopefully make it grow. If you would like to donate to the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, and we need you to, otherwise we wouldn't have started a nonprofit to raise the money, please check out our GoFundMe page at https colon backslash backslash gofund.me backslash C6513F0B. Of course, I'll tweet out that information. So there it is, the big news from the Big Rhetorical Podcast. We established the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. We are a nonprofit. I am so excited about this endeavor. I think this is really the beginning of something special. Something with the potential for growth, which means more opportunities for giving back to our community. If you have any questions, please reach out. I know most folks hate when the host of a podcast drones on and on in the introduction. So let's get to the interview. Jessica Kester is a professor of English in the School of Humanities and Communication and the Quanta Honors College at Daytona State College. Her research in writing studies focuses on social media and first-year composition, writing-related transfer, and the politics of literate practices. Jessica also 
co-founded and coordinated a writing across the curriculum and writing in the disciplines program at Daytona State College from 2013 to 2019. Her co-written article, Improving Success, Increasing Access, Bring HIPs to Open Enrollment Institutions Through WAC WID, can be found in Across the Discipline. Students really put a big old cavern or a big gap between social media writing that happens outside of class and social media writing that happens in class and they're in their other kind of uh, in school writing in general. And so that makes it really hard to transfer skills, right? Um, And so they'll describe, they'll trivialize their writing on social media. They'll say things like, oh, it's just fun. It's no big deal. I'm not thinking about it. I do it when I'm bored. And then you ask them about their academic writing, right? And they're like, it's hard, it's scholarly. And and there, that trivialization, Stephanie and I have talked about this a little bit. It's like where, you know, does that, that comes maybe from our culture that trivializes writing on social media, the impact of social media. And yet when researchers ask students if social media writing counts, you know, air quotes counts as writing, they'll often say, no, you know, that's not writing. They think of it as something different. I think Shepard's work suggests they think of it as like communication. But that's problematic for me, right? Because it absolutely is writing. It's often multimodal writing, which is really important in our in our field. Stephanie Vai is Associate Dean of the Outreach College and Professor of English at the University of Hawaii Mano- at Manoa. She is the co-editor of Social Writing Social Media, Publics, Presentations, and Pedagogies. And her scholarship has been published in numerous journals like Computers and Composition, Technical Communication Quarterly, Kairos, and First Monday. She is the 2016 recipient of the Charles Moran Award for Distinguished Contributions to the Field and the 2018 winner of the Seven Seas Committee Technology Innovator Award. And she tweets at DigiRet. The reason that I keep coming back to social media, both as someone who uses it and as someone who incorporates it into teaching and scholarship is because of the possibilities and the positive sorts of elements, especially around community building and networking. And so I, I again, want to, you know, acknowledge and, and encourage people to look at the balance and to think about the kind of individual choices, you know, what's their comfort level, what's, um, What's their choice? And that's going to be different for everybody. But, you know, to be open to the possibilities, I think it's great because the, again, the things that I've seen um, in terms of how the scholarship has developed, how this is really an area that has kind of a, a, a richly built up network of scholars who are doing this work and that it's, it's welcoming of new people coming into the conversation, that there's still so much to be said, so much to be researched. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Drs. Jessica Kester and Stephanie Vai. with you, Jessica. What's your name, your title, your institution, and your role there? So I am Jessica Kester, and I am professor of English, composition, creative writing, and technical writing, because I work at a state college um, called Daytona State College, which is a wonderful place to work, and I get to wear many hats. I am also the 
co-founder and former director of our WACWID program, which I gladly kind of passed on to a colleague uh, just last year. Stephanie, what's your name, your title, <laughs> your institution, and your role there? Uh, yeah, so I am Stephanie Bai, and I'm a professor of English at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm also an administrator there, so my title is Associate Dean of the Outreach College. And what the Outreach College is, is really kind of our adult education, um, distance learning, online learning wing of things. So essentially serving neighbor island students, um, learners in the community who aren't as effectively served by our day term classes, that kind of thing. And I've been here for a little bit over a year now. Excellent. You all are joining me today to talk about um, your article, Social Media in Practice, Assignments, Perceptions, Possibilities, which was published in Currents. And I'll give some more information on that in a little bit what, where folks can find it. But I want to I want to start folk first with talking about how this project came to be. What is the Conference on College Composition and Communication Research Initiative, and how did it help get this project off the ground? I'll jump in on that since I was the recipient of the um, CS grant that sort of got this started. So essentially, the, the Four Cs has two different uh, research grant programs, and one is really aimed at um, emerging scholars, people who maybe have not had funding from their institution, who might not have easy access to it. Um, which is a wonderful program. And then the other one is a more kind of general, uh, do you have a really interesting project that might be well served by funding? And also does it advance the knowledge of composition and um, rhetoric scholars? And so that's the research initiative grant. So I've been working with social media and with pedagogy for quite a while. And I've been doing various sorts of um, scholarship around that, much of it is grant funded. And so the, the missing piece that I had applied for was, I had looked at faculty perceptions, I had looked at professional organizations and how they had used social media. What I hadn't really investigated uh, was looking at what students were being assigned and how they felt about being assigned social media in the composition classroom. So I had applied to the research initiative grant and said, look, you know, we're really missing a very important um, aspect here, which is to hear from the students and to get their perspective on something which is becoming more and more popular. Uh, a lot more faculty are using social media in their pedagogy these days as compared to, you know, say 10 years ago. And so um, I was very, you know, pleased to receive some funding and the funding was really to support um, doing a large scale survey and interviews, focused interviews with students and to um, look specifically at some of the assignments that were being generated. And so the assignments portion was really what Jessica and I honed in on in this article, because similarly, we don't often see a lot of our scholarship in the field kind of focusing in on the um, kind of pedagogical artifacts that are being um, used, especially around digital technology. So again, what are we assigning? What are we asking students to do? What do they produce? What does it look like? So if I say, write about social media in your comp class, what is that then, what does a student hear and what do they turn into their teacher? So that's really what this project was investigating. Your research questions were, what are undergraduate students' attitudes towards social media use in higher education generally? And 
in their composition classes specifically, like you kind of laid out. And then what do assignments and activities for social media infused writing classrooms look like? How did you get to these specific research questions? What ignited your interest and why is this work important? Again, I think it was really looking at an underutilized, under-researched kind of area in terms of social media. You know, when I think about social media research in the field, there's some very sort of uh, current and appealing and uh, highly topical sorts of things that surround issues like privacy, data mining, you know, so on. And there's a lot of really great research that's been um, put together out there. There's a lot of wonderful research that's about, you know, how we present ourselves online, how um, the boundaries of academia and the hierarchies in academia might be affected by how we present ourselves and how we discuss um, different topics on social media. But what I wasn't really seeing a lot of was, again, the kind of focus on, okay, so how are people actually using this in a classroom, in a composition classroom? If And, and of course, I'm, I'm looking kind of at composition broadly here. Um, this, this wasn't just first year composition. I want to point that out. You know, a lot of times there is sort of a, I'm going to look at the first year comp class because that's what's easily readily available to me. But we were really looking at um, more broadly beyond that. But essentially, I was very curious, um, knowing that more and more people were interested in using, using social media in their composition classroom, whether that was to analyze it as a kind of topic itself, you know, what's happening in social media, go look at um, an Instagram page and look at the profiles and write about what's happening there, or to actually compose in the technology itself. I want you to write and compose Instagram, um, you know, posts. Both of those things are happening, but I didn't really have a good sense from the scholarship what students beyond mine. <laughs> I knew what I was assigning mine, but I didn't know what other people were assigning uh, to their students. And I was very interested in knowing um, not only you know what were students being asked to produce and what did they what did they hear in their minds and what got produced, what did it look like, et cetera. Would students be able to and willing to share those with me? But how did they feel about this? Because I, again, I kind of glanced upon this when I talked about boundaries and hierarchies in academia, but, you know, social media is sort of long been considered kind of an extracurricular thing. You know, this is something that I do outside of my classroom. Maybe I have a presence in there to talk to friends or family and so on. But what happens when I start bringing that into the classroom? How do the students feel about that? Is this going to be something where students are going to welcome it and say, you know, I really got a lot out of this. Um, Jessica will probably talk about this and she's been doing a lot of work with this, but you know, the idea of transfer, is this going to make any sense to students in terms of why did I do this in this class? How is this gonna help me at any other point in my life? You know, can we explain that? Are we explaining that um, through our assignments and through our pedagogy? Yeah. Jessica, you wanna add there? Stephanie did a great job providing kind of the background for the questions we were asking, what we were interested in. As, as the person who kind of was doing the first pass with these documents, I think immediately I started seeing, okay, so, you know, we want to see these documents that we teach by. We don't get this chance to see the actual deliverable that goes into the student's hands, right? There are plenty of journals where folks will sketch out the scaffolding for an assignment or describe like narratively what they're doing. But there is something really powerful about seeing kind of the directions 
that a student's receive. And uh, we coded those as like instructor created materials. And then sometimes students were uploading their responses. And you, we kind of had to use like a rhetorical analysis to backwards engineer like what their prompt probably was. Okay. And that was fascinating to see yeah. what they produced and to kind of see it in light of a possible assignment. And as mm-hmm. you know, veteran writing teachers, that was one of the ways that I loved being able to bring in that kind of teacher scholar perspective, the way that being a classroom stru- uh, instructor really informs and enriches your methodology and your methods because Stephanie and I were both able to go, oh yeah, okay, we can see what this assignment likely was just as any kind of, I don't, you know, practiced writing instructor could probably do. But we started seeing, you know, so how, like what are, what are these artifacts, but also the kind of, you know, like aspirational part. Well then, so how should we be using social media Right. So kind of the what is and needing to get a handle on that, as Stephanie said, because of a kind of a lack of knowledge in that area. But that for me immediately triggered, okay, here's what is. Is that what we want it to be? Or are we imagining something different? And Stephanie's previous work on, you know, critical media literacies or critical digital literacies or critical pedagogy, that work immediately came to mind. um, And that was a focus of our article as well, that that realization that what we're doing might not be exactly what we aspire to do, or, or maybe it is, you know, but we, we wanted to engage those questions of not only, you know, how are social media assignments being used, which is a powerful yeah. question in and of itself, but how should they? And not from right. like a judgmental perspective, right? Like right. not from like a, we know better, but mm-hmm. like, yeah, like what are, what are our goals here? Well, let's talk about that. What is right? So, one part at one point in your article, you actually write that on the whole, we, the discipline, haven't moved from pedagogical possibilities to pedagogical reality. So, what is that pedagogical reality? Well, uh, you know, so our results were, were, you know, listen, we have a small sample size. So, limitations of research right up front, more work like this needs to be done. We need to have a bigger sample. Of assignments, we do have a diverse sample. The national again, Stephanie did a national survey, so it's it's diverse. Um, it comes from beyond just her first year writing. But that said, you know, we saw that um, you know, despite some opportunities for students to write in kind of um, the the technological hotness of the moment, maybe maybe we were seeing a lot of like students writing their social media platform of choice was like the Facebook, the Twitters, like those big platforms that get a lot of attention in research. And then we look at like the Pew research data. We know that those maybe big two or three aren't the most popular or, or the most widely used among college students, right? So we found in our, in our study or the results of our study were that you know, despite opportunities to choose their own platform, sometimes students were kind of defaulting to like Facebook, Twitter. Also that social media, maybe not surprisingly was used more often as content than as a composing space. Um, and that it's very interesting to me, social media assignments often kind of reproduced traditional assignments and uh, kind of initiated texts for academic audiences. And that was surprising, right? So that, you know, d- despite potentially the ways we talk about social media and being able to engage public audiences, often what we saw in students' responses was an engagement with the teacher as audience or with that broader kind of, I'm thinking of the old, like the David Bartholomew article, right? The like the university as audience. And there are all kinds of complicated questions about that, right? Because do we really want students writing publicly or do we wanna keep them in the safer kind of walled garden 
of our classrooms because we all know we have a digital footprint now. So if I write some nonsense from a class when I was 18 on Facebook, someone can pull that up later, right? And that's a big deal. And so again, we didn't go in saying, here's what should be happening and it's not. It was like, here's what's happening. And then, yeah, like how does that align with the ways that we talk about it in our scholarship? And of course there's a huge push, you know, turn in our field, that kind of public turn. And social media is an avenue to address those kinds of public audiences, but we didn't see that happening a lot in our sample. And that again was, was just interesting to us. And I think that, um, you know, there's a really good point that Jessica raised um, based on what we were seeing in our data. And that was that there was a lot of reputation of what we might think of as traditional sorts of composition assignments, writing to the instructor, um, what Place Benuzzi's called pseudo transactionality. You know, I know exactly who I'm writing to. It's Jessica. Jessica's going to read this, maybe my classmates, that sort of thing. But at the same time, you know, I think what this also alludes to, um, and I have an article that's coming out soon in Computers and Composition that talks about some of the, the digital labor um, issues around using social media in the classroom and also kind of the, the privacy and the longevity that Jessica was just talking about. That if I do choose to make that kind of more public turn and I say, hey, you know, students, I really want you to utilize some of the broadness of the audience that social media affords. And I don't want you to just write to our little walled garden of the classroom. I want you to really reach out, reach out to authors in the field, um, you know, talk to professional organizations, tweet at people, um, follow people on Instagram and, and really interact with them, you know, those sorts of things. Then what sorts of things do I then need to be aware of and to consider and to carefully build my classroom to acknowledge in terms of students' privacy, their data, um, their safety, you know, essentially. And, and you had mentioned that you had uh, talked with your colleague, Erica Sparby, and I really respect her work that she's been doing on digital aggression. And I think, you know, as much as early on, I think a lot of us who use the internet are like, this is a great place for people to find community and to reach out to others. You know, there's been just as many moments where we've seen aggression, trolling, attacks, um, all sorts of negative things that I have. I think I have a responsibility to my students to be aware of both the problems and the possibilities and to structure my classroom environment in such a way that I'm anticipating what might happen when I ask my students to compose in certain media and what do I want to do about that? Now, I, and I don't want to say, don't ever use social media publicly, right? That doesn't make sense. But if I do, if I ask my students to do this or if I myself do this, then what are the possible implications and what should, be, what should I be aware of as a faculty member? So I don't necessarily know that our data um, really illustrated those problems and possibilities as much as they might have, maybe if we had had a broader sample. And so I would love to see more research um, in this area, but it does point to those very important conversations that we need to continue having. Because for every person who's like, social media sounds really interesting and I wanna bring that into my classroom, <laughs> um, you know, there's the possibility of that going horribly awry for Bye. everyone involved. <laughs> And that was, that was, I think, a central part of our framing, right, is that that critical use of social media is so important for all right. the beautiful reasons you just mentioned, Stephanie, right, is that sometimes we, especially in COVID times, right, there is this push to innovate and to bring in all the tools to connect and to create community. But anytime you're bringing in a platform, an application, a technological tool, 
there are risks and there are benefits. And if we are just bringing in tools, we're not necessarily um, going to get better results, right? More tools does not mean better teaching. And also we have to carefully weigh the risks against the rewards. And just personally, I don't have my students post to public audiences using social media. I have them work with content they've posted on their own, right? So they're there. Most of them, my students are there already. And so I really try to work with the content that they've already posted, having them think about that critically, engage in kind of rhetorical thinking and kind of abstracting of principles from that work they've already done. Because I'm with you, I just, right now, I don't feel comfortable with my ability to protect them or to teach them how to protect themselves well enough beyond, you know, teaching them about filter bubbles and in, you know, disengaging geolocation and some kind of simple things that we can do to create more privacy. It's a, you know, a wide world of, of harms out there, just as there are enormous benefits. I think Pew, Pew just released a, some research that, you know, for folks of color, engaging in activism on social media is hugely effective, transformative, affirm, affirming in ways that I think are essential to fostering a healthy democracy. Um, but uh, again, we can all cite stories of things that have gone really wrong on social media or, or that are going really wrong on social media. So it is a, a tricky thing, I think, to, to make those decisions. And I hope in our article, we stress that it's Lillian Minas, I think um, the, the author we cite, who says that that critical, that forethought should precede any decision you make to incorporate social media or any kind of digital tool, proprietary digital tool into a, a classroom. Yeah, well, I can say, I can confirm as a reader, um, the moment in your article where you actually push us past considering like how it should be implemented and actually ask us, should we be doing this right? It's one of the it's, it's one of the most striking moments from the entire piece for sure. Um, so when you were reviewing what you call ped pedagogical artifacts, the name you give to course materials and assignment sheets that incorporate social media or SM in the class in the writing classroom. What were some of the trends and themes you discovered? And as someone who enjoys pedagogy and course design, what did you enjoy about that part of the research project? That's a great question, Charles. Uh, I'm gonna answer the second part first. Um, it, there's like a, I mean, there's like a awesome voyeuristic like thing that happens yeah. that like teachers love, right? Where like, well, I'll show you my assignments if you show me yours, right? Um, and that's a little, like, as a, as a longtime teacher, that was really cool. Um, and, and I kind of approached them, I think Stephanie and I both did, with, with some respect and reverence, right? That these were artifacts uploaded by students. And so we knew we weren't going to have, um, given what we we're trying to do with this piece, the time to you know, backtrack somehow those professors and call them and interview them, though that is an, a possibility Stephanie and I talk about in our article. Um, so you know, obviously that open stance of, of judge not lest ye be judged, right? We weren't kind of being looking to be critical of anybody's assignments, but just to see a window into other classrooms was awesome and, and inspiring. Um, and I definitely left with a notebook full of of ideas that I was kind of, that came to mind as I would read somebody's assignment sheet and I'd be like, oh yeah, like I really wanna do, you know, I immediately thought of like, you know, how could we use social media to broaden our perspectives, 
right? So we had an assignment where somebody kind of had to analyze the way that their Facebook page kind of narrowed in their kind of information ecology. And so I immediately thought, well, if Facebook can narrow, can create a filter bubble, can't it connect us to diverse voices? Of course it can. What would we need to do to make that happen? And how could I incorporate that into my classroom? So really inspiring, really fun. Um, I was very, very glad that this is the part of the grant uh, work that Stephanie uh, brought me in to do, because I know this was a big survey and there was lots to do, but focusing on this kind of smaller chunk of the assignments was just really rewarding as a teacher scholar. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, that was great. I think one of the more interesting things that I noticed about it was one, it is so difficult to, in some ways, understand what's going on in a class and, and really how the students are being taught about social media and, and what role it really plays in the overall course from just the tiny snippet. I mean, it's sort of an obvious thing. You know, what are you really going to get um, out of a potentially eight, 10, 16 week class by looking at one artifact? So that is a that is a complicating factor, right? But but by looking at it, it's sort of like this little window, as, as Jessica said, you know, you, you get this tantalizing view of what might be going on in a classroom. And I would love to be able to do some follow-up work with the faculty members who were composing these assignments and delivering them to their students to say, tell me more about what, what your class is like. You know, what was this, how was this embedded into your course? Was this just a, a kind of one-off moment? Um, because some of the larger data that this is embedded in um, you know, when we talked with students and asked them about how did you feel about being assigned social media in the classroom, some of them, um, when they were kind of reflecting on that experience, were very disappointed that it was just sort of a one and done. You know, we, we did this really briefly and then that was kind of it. So I didn't necessarily know how did this fit into what I was being taught during the rest of the course. <clears throat> um, however, some other students really uh, had a more, you know, kind of cohesive or um, scaffolded experience where I think it fit better for them. Um, but again, that wasn't necessarily something that we were seeing in the actual artifacts itself. That was from the larger data set where I was asking students to reflect on the experience. So I think, you know, this kind of triangulation of seeing all these different moments, you know, getting their broad sense in the survey, the interview responses, the artifacts really helps illuminate, you know, what's going on um, from the student perspective, essentially. The other fascinating thing I will think um, from my sort of stance as a, a, a teacher is just the wide variety of what I received when I said, please give me an assignment in which you were assigned to use social media in a composition classroom. And again, I talked a little bit earlier about how I had left that deliberately broad, you know, composition classroom, not just first year comp, this could include a whole bunch of different things. So there were all sorts of classes where I was like, huh, all right. That's interesting, you know. Um, there were there were some that felt kind of journalism. There were some that felt kind of mass media, comm studies. There were, of course, some that felt first year comp or upper division composition. <clears throat> there were some that were kind of a class about social media itself, analyzing and so on. And so, just understanding what students even thought composition class meant was kind of interesting. Being able to see a little bit of that from what they uploaded, that was very cool, I thought. And also just understanding that, uh, and this is, I think, a field-based problem in and of itself, too, is like, what do you mean social media? Yeah. 
when I'm being asked to use social media in my classroom as a student, what does that mean to me? Um, am I going to give you a blog assignment? Am I going to give you wiki writing? Am I going to give you a YouTube um, video? A YouTube video. Yeah, yeah. We got all sorts of stuff where it's like, huh, that's social media writing. Oh, Amazon students. was a big one. I mean, I ended, we ended up including that, those kind of Amazon reviews, right? There is that social aspect. And so we decided to embrace that broad net of the term. But Stephanie's right. That was like, trying to limit what we kind of included in our sample based on what is social media. We were like, that's, that's really difficult. Yeah. It was kind of like either it's going to be the big three, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or it's going to be something where I look at it and go, huh, cool. That that's not what I was expecting, but I really like it. Thanks for giving me that. And can I speak to, to Stephanie? I thought you made a really interesting point about you know, our article was focused maybe a little more heavily on these pedagogical art artifacts, but we did, I did look at the survey data as well. And Stephanie's right. One of the things that was very interesting to me is that students often expressed kind of a desire to have more critical approaches to social, social media. And that they, there was one student, I think that we quoted in the piece and I was looking for it and I can't find it because now of course I'm, you know, we're in the podcast, so I can't do it when I need to do it. But uh, that student said something like, oh, yeah, you know, I wish it had been a more consistent thread throughout my course. It was just one one assignment. And again, that wasn't indicative of the whole sample. But that one moment was like, ah, again, back to that intentionality, right? That if we're going to do it, what students seem to be saying is, you know, we, we want it to be new and different and rich, not a gimmick, right? Not just a gimmick. And that was fascinating. And I remember that student in particular because it connected to one of the questions that was asked in the larger survey, which was, do you feel like social media impacted your writing? Being assigned social media in the classroom, do you feel like that impacted your writing? And in what way? Kind of more toward a negative direction, more toward a positive direction. And I remember that that, that was one of the students that was sort of like, I'm not sure. I, I can't right. really tell you because it was such a brief moment in my course I can't tell you if it was impactful because I didn't have enough of it. And so it really did kind of speak to, I think, some of the work that, you know, like Cindy Self and Gail Haywisher have done in the past, where it's like, don't just throw a tool into your classroom and expect that it's going to have uh, impactful results. You've really got to consider why are you using it, to what purpose, and build it in strategically. And so I think that there's a real opportunity to kind of look at these pedagogical artifacts and to, again, hopefully get a sense of stepping back. What was the larger course? How was this embedded? Because um, that kind of scaffolding is really, I think, going to be the difference between a student seeing the relevance, seeing the reason why, seeing a connection to learning outcomes, you know, understanding why are we using social media to impact my writing, to impact my composition, or we're using social media because like my teacher thinks it's kind of cool. And I guess, you know, to be hip and Let's see what happens. Because we're all there anyway, right? You know, so <laughs> Stephanie always says social media is ubiquitous, right? And there is, that is a compelling argument, right? That I always think like at its core, and we're a discipline of writing enthusiasts, right? It's like the best way I can describe myself. I'm a writing enthusiast. And so I need to be enthusiastic about the ways my students are writing outside of my classroom, inside of my classroom. And by and large, you know, Kathleen Blake Yancey has that wonderful phrase, writers are everywhere. And they are. 
right? They're everywhere. They're all over social media. They're in, still, still in journals and in blogs and all those places. Yeah. And for our field to be interested in that and take a really critical and thoughtful approach, I think is kind of essential as we move forward as a discipline. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. students see social media uses differently in the classroom versus on their own time and how do their perceptions extend to the ways they think about writing generally additionally okay this is what prompted this question for me i find that there's a tension in the percent of social media users right which you what you have at 90 percent in your study and the percent of students who think it's generally a good thing, right? When, when faculty include social media in writing classes, which was only at 65%. I, I agree, they overwhelmingly support it. What do you all think? Um, I, I will speak quickly to this and let Stephanie chime in, but um, I, I'm trying hard not to. I am working on data right now for a, a survey that looks at Instagram in first year writing in particular. And one of the things that is fascinating to me as I'm looking at this data and the article that just came out in Currents from us is that students really put a big old cavern or a big gap between social media writing that happens outside of class and social media writing that happens in class and they're in yeah. their other kind of uh, in-school writing in general. And so that mm. makes it really hard to transfer skills, right? Um, and so they'll describe, they'll trivialize their writing on social media. They'll say things like, oh, it's just fun. It's no big deal. I'm not thinking about it. I do it when I'm bored. And then you ask them about their academic writing, right? And they're like, it's hard. It's scholarly. And, and that trivialization, Steph and I have talked about this a little bit. Like where, you know, does that, that comes maybe from our culture that trivializes writing on social media, the impact of social media. 
And that's unfortunate for our field, again, because there are there's so much good research um, about the, you know, Ryan Shepard's work comes to mind, computers and composition work, where we see kind of skills that we hope to, skills and knowledge that we hope to foster about writing in the first year writing classroom in particular, but in writing classes, even at large, we sometimes see this being demonstrated and even articulated in reflections about social media writing or in the writing itself. And yet when researchers ask students if social media writing counts, you know, air quotes counts as writing, they'll often say, no, you know, that's not writing. They think of it as something different. I think Shepard's work suggests they think of it as like communication, but that's problematic for me, right? Because it absolutely is writing. It's often multimodal writing, which is really important in our, in our field. So uh, I've lost track of the question you asked me now, Charles, but I was very fascinated by the, the different ways that students kind of want to silo their writing. Um, and, and that was, yeah, I think that was the question you asked me. And, and I'll say again, I've been researching social media for a long time, and, and I've been very fascinated by this topic for many years. And so I've just been studying this. And, and what I've noticed consistently and what these data also continue to show is that there is, and I think Charles, you used this word earlier, attention. There, there is a tension between we acknowledge or we understand that there is a lot of writing and communication that is happening. And, and the students in their responses to the survey and in their reflections acknowledged that I should, I should learn how to write in this. Uh, I should learn how to communicate in this. This is going to be useful for my job. This is going to be something that I'm going to be doing, um, you know, extracurricularly. I'm, I'm, I want to be able to communicate effectively. I, I, need to, I need to know how to do this. But at the same time, and um, my data have been showing this for years, too, is that because it is so focused on our kind of um, personal lives and our, our personas that are outside of the classroom, outside of academia, there's that tension of, okay, but also I don't want to bring my personal social media into my work life. I don't want to bring my um, personal social media into my classroom if I don't have to you know, from a student perspective, they're like, I don't want my teacher creeping on my social media. This is for my friends. You are not my audience. So that tension, I think, has been with us. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. But it is something that we, we need to grapple with when we think about how and why we might bring social media into the classroom. Um, another thing that I think is really important that um, I've been researching and, and dealing with lately is just thinking about the digital labor of how when I'm trying to really utilize social media to its kind of broadest capabilities and, and tap into networks and tap into communities, I am now relying on the digital labor of my colleagues and my professional um, organizations and so on. And are we adequately acknowledging that digital labor? Are we... Um, are we honoring the fact that it takes time? If, if Jessica and I are both teaching classes and we're going to use social media and we're going to have our students interact with each other and we're going to interact with the other person's class, that's work, that's labor, but that's not the kind of thing that gets put on a CV or often acknowledged as service or pedagogy and so on. So I think there's just so much that goes into social media, teaching, pedagogy, um, administrative work, service work that is often not acknowledged or it's seen as facetious or it's seen as not really scholarly. And as somebody who's been studying pop culture kinds of topics for a long time, I'm like, this is very scholarly. It's, <laughs> it's how you approach it. 
But, you know, the number of people who have responded about, oh, social media, um, hmm, you know, I really focus on things that are important in my class because I want my students to learn how to write. And I'm like, you can still do that with social media. We see that side eye, right? That like side eye, the glance in students' responses, the way they, that Charles just made a really funny face, y'all, that the way they, the way they trivialize their own work. So I see connections, Stephanie, between what you're talking about, the lack of acknowledgement of labor or kind of scholarly prowess. And that, that transfers, that transfers to our students, right? That we think it's silly or frivolous or maybe worse, dangerous, you know, again, the, the fake news, all of the politics of 2020, 2021, Social media is uh, often to blame, right? Again, Pew Research saying that a lot of folks blame social media for the negative culture, politics, all of that that I don't have good words for at this moment. Um, and so that can all lead to kind of like, I'm thinking of Mark Bauerlein's book, right? The Dumbest Generation, right? Where like, right? If you're on social media, if you think that's real communication or real activism, Stephanie, I know you've written about this idea of slacktivism, slacktivism, say it correctly for me, but um, slacktivism, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Uh, that's problematic for our field. I think it's something as it you is. mentioned, we really need to deal with. Yeah, Charles, go ahead. I think that you bring up a really good point. I think that I want to touch on it because you're talking about our current political climate, right? And one thing that we had recently was a member of the house speak in front of Congress and say that she was allowed to believe things, right? That she see, saw on social media. So this is, is exactly what you're talking about. That That's not how it works. No. And that to me, that is that critical digital literacy that has to be part of any pedagogy that wants to bring in social media to a classroom, because you're right. If you are, if you are being victimized by your social media feed, you are not in a position of agency. And that is not what education is meant to do, right? We're trying to have a transformative experience, bell hooks, Paul, you know, uh, back to Briere, right? We have to create independence and agency. And, and we're not doing that if we're not also touching on the ways that passivity or kind of the, what we think of as maybe like, even like benign personalization can can be harmful and we have to take active steps as a reader as a reader to to avoid statements like what you just mentioned right that like i was allowed to consume i was allowed to believe which is just again for a person who uh, studies rhetoric just a, a terrible you know a position of no authority and no agency right yeah, yeah. so how should and this is kind of a, well, let me just say, this is a loaded question, um, but you are the people to ask. How should instructors navigate the, com- the messy complexities, right, of digital privacy when using social media in the writing classroom? Loaded question, I know, but what are some of the things that we can consider? I'm looking at you on this one, Stephanie. I know you do a lot of work with privacy. We offer like five suggestions at the end of our article that we think instructors should consider. So definitely take a look at those. They're pretty broad though. So Stephanie can probably speak more directly to privacy issues beyond just like class hashtags and things like that that we've heard. I think that one of the really important things is to try to take the pulse of the students in your classroom and to try to I know that this is additional labor again, you know, if, if I'm talking about labor and, and structuring one's class, I hate to put more on a faculty member, 
But if it's possible, if one has the capacity and the ability to try to really uh, get a sense from the students about what their their comfort levels are, their individual concerns about privacy, and to offer a variety of approaches, um, which again, I acknowledge as a teacher, this is very hard because it's so much easier to just say, this is the assignment, everyone is going to do the assignment. And especially with social media, um, you know, many of the faculty members that I've talked to who have wanted to bring it into their classroom, they almost feel like, well, you know, in order to get the students to really um, focus on social media, I can't, I can't offer an alternative assignment that would not have them use the social media tools themselves because then, you know, they might be missing out on this uh, very critical aspect. And so I think it's thinking about that balance. You know, what do I want the students to get out of this? What is the learning objective? Yeah, what are my learning goals? And if my learning goals are such that the only way that I can really have my students um, experience or learn this kind of thing is to actually go into the tool, to use the tool itself, then I have to make that very clear to the students from the beginning, I think. I have to offer them the opportunity, if I can, to try to do something else that would allow them to meet those learning goals, but also safeguard their privacy. Um, it's very complex. It is very messy. That's a great way of kind of approaching it. And I do think that that, that hesitancy, that's why a lot of faculty members are like, well, I'm not going to even do this because that's really complicated. It's so much easier for me to just do something um, straightforward that I've done before. Um, you know, many faculty members have talked about they lack the, the training or the knowledge of specific social media tools themselves. And so that's why we might often default to those kind of big three. These are familiar, so I'm going to use them, but students may actually want something very different. But again, turning to privacy, you know, I think <laughs> I like to scare my students. <laughs> <laughs> I like to have them actually go through and um, to, to read about and to learn about what some of the negative things can be. Not to say don't use these things, but like I want you to have, I want you to have informed consent, right? I want you to know what you're getting into with me. And I want you to know that this is a journey that we're going to go on together, right? And so what am I going to do uh, to help move you along safely? And, and I don't want this to sound like paternalistic either. Again, we're, we're all going on this journey together. So we're all vulnerable as a, a class together. But students certainly do have agency. And so I, I want them to be able to speak up and say, I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to be able, I don't want to do this part. What else can I do? Can I avoid this part? Can I use a pseudonym? Can I, um, you know, not participate in these aspects? And I've had, you know, students create a profile said, that they then delete, right? Which yep. isn't ideal, but would, if a student wanted that, that we should absolutely respect that absolutely. desire. Yeah. And, and I've had students read about what happens to your social media profiles after you die. And, yeah. you know, again, the sort of thing of like, well, let's talk about the longevity. You know, what are you going to do with this stuff after we're done with this in the classroom? So I, I think that all those elements um, should be part of the decision making kind of matrix in a faculty member's head when he or she is sitting there thinking, do I want to use social media in this classroom for this purpose? You know, start with your goals, start with the learning. Yes figure out why you even want to use these tools. What would this experience give your students? And then think about the safeguards and the kind of journey that, that everybody's going to take in this classroom and, and what could happen. And how are you going to react in the moment when 
you know, your, your student is being attacked on Twitter because they used the hashtag Gamergate and now a bunch of people have flocked in to, you know, maybe make a very uncomfortable experience for your student. Or if your student's like, you know what I want to do? I want to research QAnon. And you're like, oh, do I really want your student to go down that rabbit hole? Is I, that? I had a student want to do something on uh, like an incel subreddit, subreddit. And I, I, I ended up involving my chair and we talked a lot about, because my students in their third semester of our honors college study uh, social media and psychology. And uh, that's what they're presenting at the undergraduate research conference right now. And we had a student want to go down that rabbit hole and both um, me and my co-teachers as well as our chair decided that that just, we did not feel comfortable with allowing a student to bring that kind of like misogyny into the classroom, even in a research context. And I, I hesitate to even say that um, because I know that, that some folks might think that that is too restrictive, but just there, there's, yeah, Stephanie, it's, com it's complicated. And I think I want to say, the last thing I want to say too about this is that like, I think sometimes when things are complicated, we shy away from them, right? Because they're difficult and we don't know how to talk about them and we're gonna stumble. But even just asking the question, so I just did a, some interviews with student Instagram users. And one of the questions I asked them was, is your Instagram public or private? And some of them didn't know. So just me asking that question allows us to open up a conversation about digital literacy versus if I, if I just said social media, that's something outside of my classroom. It's too dangerous. It's too messy. I can't, again, to me, Writers are everywhere and that's where our students are. And that compels me to do the best I can while also thinking about all the privacy concerns Stephanie just mentioned. Um, but that for me, this doesn't feel like an option anymore to leave it out of my classroom if I'm trying to be relevant. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it's, you did ask a loaded question. That's a, that's a really, that's why I was like, Stephanie, answer that question. Because I, I struggle with that. A lot, even like with research methodology, right? Like I don't follow my students on social media. I don't want to do screen captures of their writing in situ during a process um, because I'm going to capture peripheral data. I'm going to capture peripheral participants that were unintended. And for me, those risks aren't worth the kind of rewards. A really lots of calls, Chris Anson, lots of folks saying we need more information about students' extracurricular literacies. But the ways that we get that information, those come with ethical consequences. Privacy matters in those contexts just as much as it matters in our teaching. So again, I, I love that the, the teacher-scholar play, right? It matters, privacy matters in our teaching. It also matters in the way that we conduct research. Let's shift gears. And well, I think we can all learn a lot about hurdles and obstacles, if not flat out failure sometimes. What were some aspects of this project that proved difficult and how did you overcome them to complete the project? So in terms of the project itself being difficult, sometimes getting undergraduate students to respond to surveys or to interviews, yeah. or in this case, to, um, to offer up the pedagogical artifacts, oh, it's, it's difficult sometimes. You know, so I had to think about how to... Uh, how to sweeten the deal in a sense. And yeah, so I had to incentivize students. I had to um, write into the grant that I was going to give students some money, a small amount of money, but you know, an acknowledgement of their participation in this, which is not an uncommon thing for grants, but the institution where I was was like, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I don't know if it was because of state laws or something like that, but it was, it was sort of like, well, you can't do that. So how are you going to encourage students to participate? And I'm like, well, I don't know, because that was the whole, the carrot (laughs) and you're taking my carrot away. Uh, We did eventually find a way where uh, because it was a, um, a grant coming from an outside agency and because I had written that specifically into my grant and it was approved that they did allow it, but there, that was very difficult. I had to do a lot of back and forth with my um, financial officers at the institution to say, look, I said I was going to incentivize people to participate in this because I know it's going to be difficult to get undergraduate student participation, especially not my own students, students that I have never interacted with nationally. And I want yeah. them to you know, give me assignments. I need to give them something in recognition of that. So that for me was probably one of the more difficult things just as a qualitative researcher to try to, to try to encourage a really, you know, broad representative appropriate sample. I think it's one of the harder aspects of this kind of work because the people who are going to self-select into responding to a survey or to say, sure, you can interview me, you know, am I getting a really good kind of representative um, sample? So I think that that's something that when you look at the reports, when you look at the results in the discussion, you know, that's certainly something that has to be used as a lens. Um, when you're looking at the data and you are interpreting them, you have to say, this is what I gathered. You know, the picture may be different. So that's why it's so important that other people also do this kind of research, throw in their results, um, you know, that way, that kind of broader sense of the landscape of social media pedagogy will allow us to see, you know, is it different at my institution versus Jessica's? I absolutely think it would be, but I need both me and Jessica to be doing that work and to be reporting on it to really get that sense of it. Let's talk about future trajectories of the work because you lay out what you have in mind pretty clearly in, in the in the piece. You all write, indeed, we see a fruitful area for research for future research that builds on this study by attempting to trace back the authors of the pedagogical artifacts in order to interview those faculty about their aims and learning goals for the assignments. Okay, I know this is important, but why is it important to you and how would you go about doing this? So we know who some of them are because their names are on the assignment sheets. Okay. So that part, the ones that have a faculty member's name or a class and an institution and a date, you know, we could, we could kind of go back and figure out who the person is. Some of them, I don't think that we would be able to just because they lack those kinds of the markers. Um, so theoretically, like there's one person whose name I, I know, and I know this person personally, and I could say, hey, do you want to have a conversation about your assignment? The interesting part would be and this is something that Jessica and I actually did have to grapple with in terms of reviewer commentary and, and thinking about the structure of our uh, approach to writing about this occurrence is that, does she know that I got a copy of her assignment? You know, my, my IRB um, application had talked about how I was going to be asking students to upload the work from their class. And so I think it does bring up a really interesting kind of ethical question of, you know, I received approval for the students to give me something that like they hold an assignment, you know, it was given to them, but is that, is that their property? Is it the faculty member's property? 
did the faculty member perhaps not want me or Jessica or the students to, you know, have copies of this to, to disseminate it further? So we really did have to talk about that to some extent in how we reported these data and how we talked about the assignments themselves and, and to what level of detail we shared information. Yeah. It was something that I had never really thought hmm. of, you know, when I was envisioning this project. I wasn't thinking like, huh. And, you know, we're such a sharing community in a lot of ways that I don't think a lot of people would be offended if, um, you know, someone beyond them had a copy of their assignment. But but I don't want to speak for everyone. You know, there may be some people who have concerns about that for whatever reason, and, and those would be valid. And so that would be a really interesting element of trying to do the tracing back. But like I said, I don't know what that person's learning goals were. You know, this the reason why I would want to do it is this is just that one little sliver of like, here's what was happening maybe in like week two of a 16 week class. What was the rest of what was happening? How did you talk about this with your students? Because we know that faculty members don't just go, here's your assignment sheet. Good luck. See ya. There's more that happens in the classroom and everything that that builds up to that and how we talk with students about the work, how we do maybe peer review. Um, the resources that we assign. So I would love to see these within that context more. I kind of think of it as if I were going into a room and right now what I have is a dark room and a sort of sliver of light at one end. And the next step of the project would be like someone handing me a flashlight in a sense. And I would be able to see more of what was going on. Um, so yeah. I think it would be very interesting to talk with the faculty and, and probably bring up a whole bunch of cool stuff. And to kind of model again, like st our students aren't data, right? They're, they're more than that. They're human beings. These professors and their courses aren't just data points for us, right? We, we got this data point, right? This assignment sheet, but we recognize that there's a human being trying their best probably behind them. And so we did work, I think, pretty hard just like methodologically, like how do we want to treat these? Because we were always aware that they were products of, of real teachers working with real students. And that kind of, again, respect for that process, again, initiated us thinking like, oh yes, wouldn't it be great to have them talk through it? But then, you know, as you guys all know, like research takes time. And so Stephanie, what the survey went out in 2017. Oh, it's like 16, 17. Yep. Kind so of right like, on the cusp asking a faculty member to even remember how they contextualize something that might not still be in use in their classroom, right? Like we, I think going forward, we would have to build that into, the, we need to build that into the process, right? So if we're going to collect pedagogical artifacts, that we also are then going to take that next step that Stephanie mentioned and hold that flashlight into that dark room and say, okay, here's what we got from the artifact. Now contextualize that for us. And so that we can present those kind of teacher-centered centered stories. But as Stephanie mentioned, you know, the goal here was to really hear from students. And so the fact that, that, that we focused on student responses, their attitudes and what they chose to upload, that is that piece. I think, you know, faculty get to, to have a voice in our field all the time. And one of the things I'm really interested in, especially as somebody who works at an open access institution and just shout out Currents is an open access journal, which is hugely important to me. My students are often stuck behind paywalls. They cannot get access to the journals that they need because we don't have a research library at Daytona State College. Um, but giving students a voice in this conversation, 
I think was really, really important. And we tried to do service to these pedagogical artifacts as well, but also highlighting that the student was really the subject through which we were gathering these documents. And so they they were given a document in a course and they chose to upload it. Um, And so we just tried to be respectful in the way that we treated it. Is there anything else you want to add about the article, uh, what it means to be a teacher scholar, uh, things like that? Uh, Maybe uh, it doesn't matter who starts. And we've talked about a lot of great stuff, right? I think for me going forward, we we talked about this question of transfer. Uh, And I think our article gets at that. We cite some work from um, Paula Rosinski and Ryan Shepard in this area that is really critical for folks to extend. I hope to extend that work myself really looking at the whole picture of our students' literacies and kind of bridging what we've, again, already talked about is maybe this kind of cavern between students' extracurricular work and the work of that we do in writing classrooms and beyond. So that's really important. I think that we, uh, our article spends some time with that important topic in our field, but also, you know, that wasn't the, those weren't our research questions, right? So it became a piece of the article that I think was really important and interesting, but not the focus of it. And um, again, I, like as Stephanie said, there's so much work to be done and we kind of pick up on, on these little nuggets, I hope that other folks will take and run with and extend um, into you know, studies that focus very particularly on the places that our study was just able to kind of glimpse. I will just say that for me, it has been so interesting, so fascinating to see the evolution of social media research in our field over the past decade plus. And I hope that this kind of conversation doesn't turn anyone away from it. I, and I know we talked about lots of messy kind of things and you know, here's some possible problems and here's some issues, but the reason that I keep coming back to social media, both as someone who uses it and as someone who incorporates it into teaching and scholarship is because of the possibilities and the positive sorts of elements, especially around community building and networking. And so I, I again, wanna you know, acknowledge and, and encourage people to look at the balance and to think about the kind of individual choices, you know, what's their comfort level, what's, um, what's their choice. And that's gonna be different for everybody, but you know, to be open to the possibilities, I think it's great because the, again, the things that I've seen um, in terms of how the scholarship has developed, how this is really an area that has kind of a, a, a richly built up network of scholars who are doing this work and that it's, it's welcoming of new people coming into the conversation, that there's still so much to be said, so much to be researched. So I was really excited when I was looking at your um, kind of bio statement, Charles, online, and I saw that you had an interest in, you know, social media in the classroom. I was like, I hope you're writing about this or that you want to write about this someday because, yeah, this is exactly yeah. the sort of thing that um, I, I love to continue reading and um, to collaborate with people on. So uh, we- I hope that people hear the, the, the possibilities yeah. from this. Can we question the interviewer? Can we ask you? Oh, no. How do you? <laughs> no. You said no? I'm not allowed to do that? I, I said, oh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can say no. Yeah. We both heard no, and we're like, I know. Oh, I like, okay. <laughs> but do you want to, Charles, do you want to sure. share? How do you use social media in your classroom? Okay. So 
I use social media in my classroom a great deal. It depends on the classes that I'm teaching, like so the like uh, the business writing and the WID. Uh, well, I guess they're WAC classes here. Um, those those I use it more there. But I'll give you one example of an assignment that I do. So one day, it's usually got to be a throwaway day, maybe like a class conversation day. I hate to call it a throwaway day, but we all have those during the, when we're designing a course. Let's just be honest. Um, so go in and have all the students like turn all their devices all the way up and turn all of the all of the notifications on that they can and then have one like you know um note taker really they're just making tally marks right um and then try to have that 50 minute class and keep up with all of the different notifications and sometimes i think the then the last time I did it in person was like last year. I think we were like 180 notifications in a 50 minute class from a range for, of social media platforms from WhatsApp to Facebook to LinkedIn to Snapchat. I mean, obvious TikTok, you know, um, but that's a good way to talk, talk up to that. I've found to talk to them about just like disruptive writing. Right. So like you're still going, but you can still check your, your social media. Right. There's nothing you're not going to, for some students, they might lose their their train of thought if they stop and you know check their their Facebook or their Instagram. But for a lot of us, we have a lot of tabs open a lot of the time, right? So um, I kind of I like to frame it that way and talk talk to. That's one thing I do to bring in social media, I guess. That reminds Let me breathe. Me of, <laughs> that reminds me of Pamela Takayashi's term. She has a term for this called mental juggling. Yeah, that she yeah. talks about when she studies writers writing on Facebook that they are simultaneously engaging in text messages or simultaneously engaging in email with their professors. And there's a lot of work about that idea of distracted distraction and writing. And I think mm -hmm. that is a fascinating way. Yeah. A fascinating way to bring in social media to kind of explore those topics. And again, in a pretty safe, right. In yeah. a pretty safe way, because yeah. you're relying on the social media to the point I made earlier, if students are already there, asking them to mine those experiences or to reflect on the rhetorical strategies they've gained or to predict transfer opportunities or to turn all their notifications up and kind of keep an emotional law. Like, does their stress level rise when this happens? Are they feeling empowered? They can, they're ready to go. Um, there's the risk for those kinds of activities. They're relatively low, but the rewards are potentially great. We need one of those C's grants, you guys. <laughs> yeah. I hear well, Stephanie's a, a real good grant writer. <laughs> and I was thinking of um, some of Patricia Portanova's work that she did in the edited collection that I worked on with yeah. Doug Walls. Um, it's called Social Writing, Social Media. Um, but Patricia's chapter is really about that kind of distracted writing of when you're when you're checking social media constantly while you're trying to focus on your writing. Does it, does it distract you to the point where you're actually making more errors and so on and so forth? You should go read it. Um, you should use it if you ever do uh, that kind of assignment with your classroom again, which I love that. I have no notifications because I cannot be distracted in that way. And it, it's such a great idea because even though you kind of talked about it, I know, throw away, right? Like thinking about one's own writing process is a, a hallmark of many composition Absolutely. courses. And so that would be a very easy way to talk with students about, well, what is your ideal writing process? You know, does it involve a lot of notifications or the tabs open or going back and forth? Like, I cannot write like that. I can't even write with music going behind me because it will distract me so much unless it's music that I've heard a million times before and I can tune out. And even then my brain will hear it. So your classroom would have put me on edge. I would have heard all those notifications and I would have been like, ah, I can't, I can't work. Yeah. 
Exactly. I have to share. I have to share before I, I know we're running over probably, but I have to share. Um, your assignment made me think of one by Tracy Gardner. Yeah. Who uh, has a great assignment that I have used. I did not use it this semester, but she has students try to tell the story of their data. So look oh, at their yeah. posts on Instagram, at on Twitter, their text messages, whatever they consider kind of their go-to communication consumption applications, and to really like as you mentioned, Stephanie, reflection about your own writing is a hallmark of kind of, especially FYC pedagogy, but to be able to have that moment to take a step back and say, well, like, well, what is, who am I as a writer in this situation? Who am I as a prosumer to use, you know, SD Beck loves that term. Um, and I think, again, the risk for assignments like that are relatively low, but also opportunities to create that critical digital literacy and information literacy and all of those things that we know are, you know, I know FYC can't be everything to all people at all times, right? That's another, I think, Yanceyism, right? That she's like, that's like the hardest thing to do is design an FYC class because there's so much you want to do and there's just not enough time. But uh, I think the assignments that you shared and that, that we've been talking about allow you to kind of double and triple dip into the guacamole, Stephanie, with the tortilla chip um, to get a lot out of, you know, really kind of traditional kind of writing pedagogy, but also work in that critical digital literacy. Working with Stephanie has been a wonderful experience, and I hope that everybody gets to work with a mentor that is as knowledgeable and skillful as Stephanie, but also somebody that really trusted my own instincts. Uh, like Stephanie said, she's been doing this work, you know, uh, for a while now. Her 2008 article in computers and composition is probably... Is Cited so in the dis. Yeah. Oh, it's all, yeah, it's everywhere. I keep, I would sometimes be like, I just saw you in a news. Like, it's all the time. It's that, that article, right? Um, but, but even with that level of expertise and experience to, to trust my experience and my voice um, was just really, really rewarding to be supported, but also, again, just like trusted and valued as a colleague um, was really, really rewarding. And I hope that everybody gets to work with folks like Stephanie. I know that's not the case, but there are people like that out there. And I would just encourage folks to find their people. You know, if, if your mentor or your advisor is not giving you what you need, um, I hope that you will find somebody that does because it's been the most rewarding experience working with Stephanie. <laughs> you can tell Jessica teaches some creative writing. She's able to, to bring everything all together at the end. She's Thanks. later. She's going to send me a poem that has avocados in it. I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> Thank you. Challenge so much. accepted. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with me today. You're welcome. Charles, this was great. Opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, for letting us be here and for chatting with you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with doctors Jessica Kester and Stephanie Vi. I learned a ton from them, for sure, about implementing social media in the classroom. I mentioned a throwaway day when I was describing my distracted learning social media activity. I think a classroom discussion day would be a better way to frame that. I know it's been only an hour or so, but I want to remind you about donating to the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. If you would like to donate to the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, please check out our GoFundMe page at 
https colon backslash backslash gofund.me slash c6513f0b. And I'll tweet that out. If you are a graduate student who makes significant contributions to rhetoric, composition, communications, in their teaching service scholarship, and commitment to diversity and inclusion, please apply. Don't forget about the financial award. The second annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival is coming up later this year in August with the theme, Misinformation in the Classroom and the Community. We are already building a stellar lineup of podcasters for that event. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and follow us on Twitter, at TheBigRet. Reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. This week, I need you to share, share, share our social media posts. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast this week is brought to you by Jay Lang, Outsider's Paradox, N-I-G-I-D, and Rob Walker. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is a production of Exalt Digital Media. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically.